Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We're continuing along chapter six about self-knowledge in Jung's book, The Undiscovered Self, The Dilemma of the Individual in Modern Society. We're almost there, and hopefully you found this to be useful, even if it is a little bit intellectually driven. But I think, actually, that's how it seems initially. And yet what we've learned in all of these chapters is actually how this is really about balancing out the intellectual, the knowledge, the known with the unknown or the unconscious or the faith-based side of things, which is not so much in your head at all, but rather really focused in on your experience. And in particular, Jung's antidote to a lot of this is the religious experience which is defined as the individual's relationship with God and having that having that moment or moments of realizing that you are indeed connected to God, to this force larger than yourself that, well, depending on how you define it, but I mean, really rules all things and is metaphysical and that you can't force someone to believe in it, but rather having the experience is where we really see the benefits. And And I've pointed already to Buddhism, which definitely points its seekers to experiential means rather than dictatorial beliefs or confining them to just listen to the rules without having experienced the reason behind them themselves. And so Today we talk about self-knowledge and I think it's so critical because, well, this whole book is about the individual and so we want to know ourselves and get to know what that even, what is self, what does that mean? And Jung's first point really is that he says that self-examination declares human dignity. And so when we discover important truths about ourselves, there's a psychological advantage because we deem ourselves worthy of attention and sympathetic interest. So just the fact alone that you are looking at yourself and wanting to get to know yourself is by his estimation useful and wonderful and and actually gives you an advantage because it's declaring your human dignity by acknowledging the worth of the individual because you're willing to look at it. If it wasn't worthwhile, you wouldn't spend time wanting to get to know it, right? So... Then he goes on to say the unconscious is only accessible source of religious experience and it's the medium from which the religious experience seems to flow. And the religious person is clear with the idea of how the subjective experience is grounded in relation to God, in relation to the metaphysical. He says a God is an anthropomorphic idea filtered through the medium of the unconscious psyche. So anyone who wants can draw near to the source of these experiences, no matter whether they believe in God or not, which comes back to my point. And in Buddhism, they state, you know, you don't need to believe in God. There doesn't have, there's no belief. Belief is thinking. Again, we don't need to think anything. It doesn't matter actually if you believe in God, which I was speaking about last time as well. We don't actually care if you believe in God. It's have you seen have you experienced God? And 
these experiences that draw you near to that really you're seized by them it's an overwhelming experience to me it's the profound nature of a sunset or as i mentioned before childbirth or something that is just so deeply instinctual that you don't have a choice it's seizing is his word and really an overwhelming experience and so you can't you can't believe in it and you certainly can't believe in it just by being told about it you really have to experience it and i think that's such a beautiful beautiful thing to convey if anything from this entire series is no one's here to tell you to believe in god i'm here to ask you if you've experienced god and what that means for you so his next point is that paul's damascus experience is a prototype for miraculous conversions and so let's let's go there page 90 without this approach it is only in rare cases that we witness those miraculous conversions of with paul's which paul's damascus experiences the prototype that religious experiences exist no longer needs proof but it will always remain doubtful whether what metaphysics and theology called god and the gods is the real ground of these experiences the question is idle actually and answers itself by reason of the subject reason of the subjectively overwhelming numinosity of the experience anyone who has had it is seized by it and therefore not in a position to indulge in fruitless metaphysical or epistemological speculations so he's saying it's so grandiose and so big you get seized by it that there's no contemplation component you're just in it um and and so the one experience that makes sense of individual existence is in a medium that catches many prejudices right i mean so when you when you experience god it kind of everything makes sense and it feels like it makes sense and we judge it so extremely and so i guess i think the antidote he's already saying is just to not ask anyone to believe in anything or to categorize your experience in any way really it's that's not the point to even talk about it or to believe in it or to discuss it it's not a discussion it's not up for discussion it's something that you're meant to seek out experience and then come to your own conclusions as a result of your experience that's the way that we're meant to be which is his whole point in this entire book your relationship with god it's your relationship you don't have to talk about it right like with your marriage or your friendship with your best friend or your parents like that you don't really need to talk about the relationship with anyone else other than with that person I mean, maybe if you have a therapist or you're getting support in that way, then maybe that's that's a means of it. But really, and that's, I suppose, where priests were meant to come into the picture, right? To sort of be that channel to the divine, similar to how therapist is perhaps the channel to your support within the suffering of a relationship that you're in or a certain personal situation. They're meant to be sort of a channel to a better reality or different healing. But I don't think have to talk about this which is sort of interesting because here we are talking about self-knowledge and all of this but when it comes to well when it comes to god it's an experience so page 91 what good can come out of nazareth the unconscious if not regarded outright as a sort of refuse bin underneath the conscious mind is at any rate supposed to be of merely animal nature in reality, however, and by definition, it is of certain extent and constitution so that overvaluation or undervaluation of it is groundless and can be dismissed as mere prejudice. 
At all events, such judgments sound very queer in the mouths of Christians, whose lord was himself born on the straw of a stable among the domestic animals. It would have been more to the taste of the multitude if he had got himself born in a temple. In the same way, the worldly-minded ma mass man looks for the numinous experience in the mass meeting, which provides an infinitely more imposing background than the individual soul. Even church Christians share this pernicious delusion. So he's saying that <sighs> there's, first of all, that we have some sort of prejudice around merely animal nature. And we talked about this last time, right, where he believes that actually these instincts that we have and the symbols that convey these instincts of the first man or of that initial state of man are really important and that we need to update the sim symbols and that we should be very careful about judging and having prejudices over the fact that, well, animal nature, animal nature is actually supremely important in his estimation. And so we need to be careful about just relegating it to the sidelines, as he mentioned in the last chapter, where we're seeking knowledge at our own peril at times when we're forgetting those instincts, we're forgetting the divine, we're forgetting the symbolism and the mysticism behind myth and the unconscious and faith. We're, we're focused on this, as I mentioned last time, that pendulum, right? And we're sort of focused on one side and heavy-handed on one side instead of being in the middle or remembering both. So he's just sharing that, um, you know, the unconscious is important in our past. Collective shadow is large and grave. All humans have the capacity for crime. We benefit from possess possessing imagination and evil. It gives us the capacity to deal with evil being naive to it is worse you project it onto other this carries fear and strengthens the opponent so what's he saying okay well we all have a shadow and we all have the capacity to do bad things evil things and we benefit from possessing the imagination and evil to imagine evil things and to understand them is good and this is sort of the same thing as when we see this kind of trend right now with with banning books these banned books and ideas that okay if we just ban it or if we just shut it down or close it away in a closet it won't come back to haunt us and it's not a problem but his argument is that it makes us weak and not only that if we're naive worse we project it onto others and then we need saving in a sense that we're fe then we fear others because they're evil and we're not but we do have the capacity and so if we have the capacity we know how to deal with it if we know that somebody could potentially scam us or hurt us or and if and if we know that we have the same capacity in ourselves we feel stronger in a sense right because okay this is this is a human this is a human tendency or I'm capable of this as well. So I can kind of think about how I would approach it and thus understand it and not allow it to happen to me. But if I just act, the weak component of acting is though you don't have that within you, even if you are, let's say a more gentle personality or you don't show it, it's not to say that you have to show your teeth and growl at people. It's to say that you have the capacity to do so and that you have the capacity for it so that you understand it. Because if you don't have the capacity, it means you don't understand it. It's not a part of you. It is a part of you. It's a part of all of us, right? We've all done um, maybe not evil, outright evil things, but certainly mean things or untoward things. And so you have that part of yourself within you. And to deny it, he says, is harmful and being naive is even worse. And to project it onto others is a, is a grave mistake because we have the duality of good and evil. And human is the inventor of the psychic constitution, as he says, and let's see page 96 evil is lodged in human nature itself it lies in man 
So the Christian view is the metaphysical principle of evil that exonerates man's conscience of responsibility, puts it to the devil, which is an interesting idea that, okay, the Christian view gives, makes evil metaphysical, which means it's not from us. It's beyond the physical, which he's saying exonerates our conscience of responsibility. So we're, our responsibility for anything evil is removed. It wasn't us. It was the devil that came with, captured us, right? Seized us in a similar way that we're saying we're seized by an experience with God. We're seized by this evil and it, we're out, you know, you hear these kind of defenses of, of murderers sometimes where, oh, I was not even, it wasn't me kind of thing. Like it just took me, it took over me and it's this instinct or it just happened um, and puts it to the devil or something outside of us. And so today, he says, man today has more effective means to realize their proclivity to evil. And the problem is that reason alone does not suffice. And he says that the individual man knows no answer to his dualism. So we have this dualism, right? We have this good and evil, the angel and devil on our shoulder. We know that kind of picture of the good good bird and evil bird are these two voices kind of whispering to us. And so the answer seems to be is that God is unitary. It's unity. And so if God is unitary and created man in his own image, mankind lived for centuries believing in this unity. But the individual of one side versus the other side, this dark, dangerous shadow versus the helpless victim or the angel creates problems and the invisible helper to dark machinations of political monster. So there's this dark, dangerous side that's not you, that you don't have, that's without you. Then, well, it bears rise to this idea of these outside forces that can be the devil that, again, you can blame, right? And sort of you need protection from. And we like to vilify the other side. We talked about this in terms of just about any sort of political beliefs, um, we like to sort of see the other side as evil and we're righteous and then they're bad and then we can feel better about ourselves rather than owning the evil within us. And the evil meaning, you know, again, not necessarily that you're malicious, but that you have the capacity to do evil things, hurtful things, bad things. You have that capacity and yet you get to choose. And so he seems, he goes on to talk about the nature of political bodies to see the evil in the opposite group, which is what I just said. Um, it's the same as the individual has a tendency to get rid of everything he does not know. And so we see that too, huh? That, you know, if something's new, if you don't really know much about it, then you just want to throw it out because, well, this is just unknown. And so it could be dangerous. We definitely have that. If something is a new experience, we avoid it. We certainly try to avoid uncertainty by, well, vilifying or just throwing something out. So, as an individual, we definitely have the tendency to get rid of things we don't know um, because they're scary and or potentially dangerous or evil, right? We kind of make a reasoning for it. Um, and so this divisive and alienating effect, he says, leads to the lack of responsibility and moral complacency. And and that's the kind of that's the kind of problem, isn't it? When we just say, you know, the devil did it, or I was I was sort of taken over, something came over me. We say we have that expression, right? In English, something came over me. And he seems to think that that's not, well, that's not beneficial for us to think that way. 
it's stronger or more empowering for us to think about the fact that we have both sides and God is this unity and we were created in his image and that we are better off by believing in this unity and understanding both of our sides and uniting them as God is this united front of both. And so that's an interesting idea when it comes to self-knowledge. Self-knowledge in his definition is understanding you have good and evil within you. Understanding the duality is self-knowledge, at least for now, as we've read so far. So far, that's one piece of self-knowledge. So he says that where love stops, power begins, violence and terror. And I mean, we see that, right? Certainly at least fear, if we want to start with fear, but on one side is love and on the other side is power. And for us to believe that people are driven by power is problematic and we need to, well, sort of think about that the antidote to this power and the antidote to this idea of being solely driven by power and influence, the antidote is to bring love into the equation, which I think we can all get on board with and we all say. And so let's let's really think about that. How can you bring more love into your life? Or where are the places where you are throwing out things that you don't know, cultures, people, concepts, ideas from different political parties or different ways of thinking, where are you just throwing it out because it seems dangerous, it seems new, it seems different, it seems counter to what you believe. That's an indication that you could go toward it. In my estimation, you should go toward the things that are unknown so that you can figure them out. I mean, maybe with a 10-foot pole, maybe you don't dive right in. No one's saying to put yourself in harm's way intentionally, but maybe you do investigate those things. If there's something that you are feeling the tendency you're noticing that you have the tendency to throw out that, oh, I don't need to consider this or, oh, this is just a load of <laughs> a load of something, uh, then, you know, maybe that's something to consider. It's actually probably something to, to look into for yourself. Um, it's a great indicator. And so, and then pour love over it and pour love over that for yourself and, and others. And when we stop with the love component, that's where power begins, violence, terror. It's this idea of love your neighbor rather than calling into the authorities and telling on them for not following the rules, which is what's encouraged in more dictatorial societies, right? Um, it's kind of spying, nat spying nature and um, surveillance idea. The the opposite is, is love, right? Not exerting power over your neighbor, but rather being loving and compassionate to your neighbor and helping your neighbor. It's the same idea, I suppose, within your own family and, and within yourself. Um, so uh, as we've learned, start with yourself with that. Um, so he says to recognize the prejudices, we recognize prejudices when we're willing to examine them against objective reality. Um, he goes back into the state and says, state has no intention to use self-criticism to improve understanding and relationship man to man. So again, kind of neighbor to neighbor. Instead strives for a psychic isolation of the individual. The more unrelated individuals are, the more state is consolidated. So if you have a group of just ones and individuals and you don't know your neighbor, no one knows each other. And we see this now increasingly in society, don't we, where people don't really know the people on their street or in their town or in their city or in their province. I mean, and we're just, even if you just think about your street or your building, do you know the people around you that are there every day, day over day? These are people that sleep <laughs> feet, if not meters or, you know, 
kilometer away from you. They're, they're around you every day. And yet, do you know them? It's kind of a, an interesting thing to think about as a kid. I knew my entire street, really. My best friend lived two houses down. I knew all the people on the street and they knew me and that, that meant something. And this isolation that we're seeing today could be resolved or at least supported or eradicated, if not supported, but eliminated. If we, if we just kind of knocked on our neighbor's door and they were willing to receive us. So, I mean, this is my taking his idea and kind of going a few steps along the the continuum with it. But I mean, that's what he means in essence, I think. Um, and, And that it's problematic. The more unrelated individuals are, the more the state is consolidated. Everybody's looking to the state for the answer instead of looking within their own communities. Um, so to be ideal is impossible. So he talks of ideals. So talks of ideals is not ideal. Idealism doesn't last long. The buff, the bluff is snuffed out. And I've put a note to myself to read you something. So let's do that. Page 101. True. All sorts of attempts are made are being made to level out glaring social contrast by te- by appealing to people's idealism, enthusiasm, and ethical conscience. But characteristically, one forgets to apply the necessary self-criticism to answer the question, who is making the idealistic demand? Is it perchance someone who jumps over his own shadow in order to hurl himself avidly on an idealistic program that promises himself a welcome alibi? How much respectability and apparent morality is there, cloaking with deceptive colors a very different inner world of darkness? Ooh, how much respectability and apparent morality is there, cloaking with deceptive colors a very different inner world of darkness? One would first like to be assured that the man who talks of ideals is himself ideal, so that his words and deeds are more than they seem. To be ideal is impossible and remains therefore an unfulfilled postulate. Since we usually have keen noses in this respect, most of the idealisms that are preached and paraded before us sound rather hollow and become acceptable only when their opposite is openly admitted to. Without this counterweight, the ideal goes beyond our human capacity, becomes incredible because of its humorlessness, and denigrates into bluff, albeit a well-meant one. Bluff is an illegitimate way of overpowering and suppressing people and leads to no good. So we all sort of know the stereotype of, you know, politicians over-promising and under-delivering, and I think he's just sort of poking at that here, and it's sort of interesting who is making the idealistic demand. Who is the one appealing to this ethical conscience of yours and trying to make you into this moral being? Who is it? And and are they indeed this, behaving at that same ethical level as you or that they're demanding of you? Do they behave in that way? Or is it a, as he says, welcome alibi? He hurls himself avidly on an idealistic program that promises him a welcome alibi. I love, I love this one question of how much respectability and apparent morality is there cloaking with deceptive colors, a very different inner world of darkness. So there's this be good, do good outward appearance. And the stronger someone's pushing that on you, that cloak it's it's hiding these colors underneath the surface of the inner world of that person, the darkness of that person. And so it's almost like the more somebody pushes that light towards you, the more kind of pushing on you and, and asking for this ethical conscience of you, the more they're pushing for it. Um, it's almost seems to be that they're 
the degree to which they push this morality on you is to the to is the degree that they're cloaking themselves and trying to hide that inner world or inner shadow of themselves. Recognition of the shadow, on the other hand, leads to the modesty we need in order to acknowledge imperfection. And it is just this conscious recognition and consideration that are needed whenever a human relationship is to be established. A human relationship is not based on differentiation and perfection, for these only emphasize the differences or call forth the exact opposite. It is based rather on imperfection, on what is weak, helpless, and in need of support, the very ground and motive of dependence. The perfect has no need of the other. But weakness has, for it seeks support and does not confront its partner with anything that might force him into an inferior position and even humiliate him. This humiliation may happen only too easily where idealism plays too prominent a role. Oh, so how does this relate to self-knowledge? Well, if you're not perfect, which no one is, then A, that takes a load off. B, it lets you know part of yourself that's very human. And C, it lets you connect with other humans because we're all human. And so this need to be perfect or morally better and posture to others how good we are. We all have the tendency. I get it. Um, I'm not, again, I state these things or read these things not because I think I'm better, but because it's sort of, it's so true. It's so true of the human condition. And so it's just something to think about in your mind, right? Recognize the shadow. It leads to modesty needed to acknowledge your imperfection, acknowledge, right? Just as we're saying, acknowledge the good and the evil, acknowledge the duality of yourself. So acknowledge the imperfections and and have the modesty that comes with it, which is such a powerful, I think it's, well, it's virtuous to be to be humble. And I think you will be humbled if you, if you're not, all, if you haven't already been, I think it will, it's, it's coming <laughs> because- Certainly any time that I, I step over that line in any way, shape, or form, I think I get a, a good dose of, of reality there of, hey, hang on a second, you know, you can't perfect something. Even if you want things to be really, really perfect and wonderful, I mean, nothing that you do is or you are not. And that's actually the beauty of the humanity, which we say, and it sounds kind of cliche, like, oh, you're beautiful because you're not perfect, you know, love your imperfections. It sounds kind of trite when I when I say it out loud. But again, remember where love stops, power begins. So if there's this terror, if there's this fear, it's like, don't be afraid of the fact that there are imperfections. Almost hone in the great parts of you, sharpen them and acknowledge where you could use some help and bring people in. And that leads to the lessening of that isolation that's also talked about, brings us together, allows everybody to use the stronger parts of themselves. And in that way, we're stronger together as well. And so not only can you utilize your strengths, but others can too. And we're all kind of in this thing together, understanding that no one's perfect, but everyone has something to bring to the table. And that's, well, that's a community I want to live in, not one of fake perfection that we see in some areas of the world now where you need to physically look perfect and sound perfect and have this perfectly manicured lawn and seemingly perfectly manicured life. Um, I don't want to live in a place quite like that <laughs> to the to the end that it exists, even exists, I think. But people trying to create that under this fake veneer, right? Remember the cloak you know, they just have these big cloaks on, whether it's clothes or personas, they're wearing these masks. And we all wear masks to some degree, but 
yeah, what mask are you wearing and and how much of you are you showing? And can you go to sleep at night really thinking that, you know, you've given your best and sh and shown the best of what you have and acknowledged your shortcomings and asked for help and helped others and done the best that you can with where you're at and what you have going on. I mean, that's, I think that's all we, anyone can really ask for. So he certainly says that we don't want to be in isolation and that dictatorships want individual social units to be isolated. And the, so back to that idea that I mentioned of that spying or that justice is uncertain and that we need this protection from the evil that's outside of us and that we're so, I mean, <laughs> if you look at yourself for two seconds, you realize that you have the tendency toward evil or, or to do bad things, right? We all have that tendency. So I don't think it's without outside of us. I think it's within us. And so if we can acknowledge that, um, well, I think we'll be better off. So self-knowledge is understanding your duality. Self-knowledge is understanding that you are, that you have imperfections from the standpoint of, let's say, strengths and weaknesses, or you're not this perfectly rounded being. And that actually creates space for you to connect with others and build relationships and depend on each other. And that's actually a good thing. And that the counter to this violence, terror, evil outside of us that we need to tackle and then everything will be fine because the devil is, you know, calling our name. Um, it's sort of like, well, but hang on a second. If we really adhere to the idea that we need to take personal responsibility over ourselves, then, well, we don't have to give ourselves up to the devil or those devilish tendencies that are calling our name, but we do need to know that they exist. And we do need to know that we have those tendencies within us. So self-knowledge is you have both sides. You can choose how you relate to both of them. You have to acknowledge both of them and acknowledge that you're imperfect or that you don't always pick the right side. And so acknowledge that to connect with others and, um, well, be a good neighbor. He says on page 102, to counter this danger, the free society needs a bond of an affective nature, a principle of a kind like caritas, the Christian love of your neighbor. But it is just this love for one's fellow man that suffers most of all from the lack of understanding wrought by projection. It would therefore be much in the interest of the free society to give some thought to the question of human relationship from the psychological point of view, for in this resides its real cohesion and consequently its strength. Where love stops, power begins in violence and terror. So be conscious of this situation. Don't be idealistic. Don't pretend. Don't pretend that you're perfect and that you don't know what I'm talking about right now. Acknowledge it in your consciousness and say that you understand that it exists and understand that love wins and that it's not just a cheesy slogan, but that you know that you're better off and your neighbor is too when you see them as your loving neighbor that you want to help rather than your enemy or somebody you need to spy on. <laughs> so don't allow the appeals to your tendency to project evil outward know that you have that tendency know that you have this tendency to take the evil or, or bad part of you and try to project it on others understand that and when you notice somebody or something is trying to get you to project your evil nature on someone else to be rid of that moral responsibility um and subsequently if someone's 
selling you some idealistic story about morals to make you into this perfect person that has this ethical conscience that makes you better than other people. Be careful of that too. So self-knowledge is knowing both your sides and, well, acknowledging them and not letting somebody try to tell you that they'll purify you and this person over here is the enemy and so we need to fix them. Um, Fix yourself. (laughs) That's enough work, uh, I think, as it is. And with that, I will see you in the next episode. It's the last episode of this series and then we're moving on to... Um, a travel series inspired by a dear friend of mine. And we'll see how that goes. That's more nerve wracking than this to me in some weird way, (laughs) because it's about me and uh, Hey, everybody is. uh, It's interesting when we have to talk about ourselves, isn't it? It's easier for me to say this, but it's true. I mean, I, I have all the tendencies of this exact episode. And so no one, the comforting thing is that no one is counted out of this, are they? So anyhow, the next And last chapter of this book is the meaning of self-knowledge and exploring our own souls and understanding that actually the shadow contains more than mere negativity. So let's see what else is in the shadow and grasp the meaning of self-knowledge. And again, self-knowledge, right, is, is what we've talked about today. So let's see how he ends this off and wrap up this series. I'm so grateful that you're here if you're finding this interesting and bringing you some new ideas or thoughts i'd love if you shared them with me write a review subscribe to the show share this with a friend it all actually makes a difference you think oh whatever i'll just share it with one person like who cares well first of all that person (laughs) that you're thinking of right now might be really happy that they have something different to listen to in the car and i will thank you immensely for introducing somebody new to my show and Well, hopefully it sparks a conversation, which is exactly what we talked about here. We don't have to live in isolation. Let's live in conversation with our neighbor. That means also your friends, your family, the people you know already. So let's live in conversation. Let's make this a living conversation in in reality. Now that you've heard this, let's take this forward and bring this to the dinner table or your next phone call with your friend. Share about this. Share about what you think about it. If you completely disagree with me, share that. I want to hear what you think and people need to hear what you think so that we have this in dialogue, that we're in discussion about this, that this idea is living in the minds of others. And so in the conversations, if it's in conversation, people will walk away and say, oh yeah, I've never really thought about it like that. And maybe they'll tell someone else. So do not discredit the power of your voice. You're listening to this. If you share it with one person and think, hey, you know what? They'd they'd like this or they would hate this <laughs> um, or they'd find this interesting or have never thought of it this way. Share it with your partner. You might think that that doesn't matter, but this whole book series, the, the thesis of this whole book series is that you have to take responsibility for your life. And that's the level of analysis that matters most. So what you do matters. Because if I thought that what I do doesn't matter, I wouldn't even make this episode, right? If I thought, ah, who's going to listen to this? Who cares? The whole point is that you're listening to this. And so you care. And so what you do with this episode and what you do as a result of hearing this, that matters, whether you spark a conversation or you change the way you're approaching someone or something in your life, or you take on some level of responsibility and accountability for something that you've done that's sort of less or untoward, you know, all of it matters. That's why I'm doing this series for the individual, for you listening. So I think people, when it's, when it's not kind of live or they feel in podcasts, like 
the person is not maybe speaking to you. It's like, I'm speaking to you directly to you listening. You're listening to this. I'm speaking with you. And so this is for you. And what you do with this matters because I've made this for you. So I don't know if I'm, if that makes sense. Um, it makes sense to me because I made this for you and what you do with it makes a difference. So please share this, talk about this, write about this, review this episode, send it to a friend. It makes a difference. With that, I'll see you next time for the last episode of this series. I'm so glad that you take the time to join me when you're going through your day. I know there are lots of places you could be. So thanks for taking the time to spend, spend a little bit of your day with me. And I will see you next time. Take good care until then.